probably did hate Mayo and we thought it was hate at the time because these guys are trying to take away our dreams. The Football Pod live Thursday June 2nd in Castle Bar. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events and get your tickets now. Welcome back. It is the Sunday pay-per-view here on Off The Ball. It is a chance for us to look at the best of the sports writing in today's papers. Understandably, a lot of writing about the Munster Senior Hurling Championship, quite a bit around Leinster's upcoming Heineken Champions Cup final against La Rochelle. And the angle that has naturally come out of that, which is across a lot of the back pages, is O'Gara versus Sexton. Here's the back of the business post today. The best of frenemies is how they have phrased it. But it is across the vast majority of the papers. You know, the last day of the Premier League, understandably, is taking over the back pages too. You see, for example, the back of the Observer Sport today, down to the wire. It's the fact that the Premier League season, the title race, uh, particularly going down to the last day. We will have live commentary later from Manchester City against Aston Villa with Brian Kerr and with Stephen Doyle. City knowing that if they win, it'll be a fourth title for them in the six years of Pep Guardiola, four and five seasons. And also, uh, we've got a look at Leeds' situation at the bottom of the Premier League with Jonathan Wilson in his inside football piece. And Jonathan is saying that this can't be simply broken down as Marcelo Bielsa's fault for the first part of the season or Jesse Marsh for the way that Leeds finished the season, that Leeds need to have a look at themselves in a much wider context as to why it hasn't worked out for them. Eamon Sweeney on the back of the Sunday Independent, death or glory on decision day. It is the last day of the Munster Championship round robin with Cork best place to qualify for the All-Ireland Championship we know that Limerick and Clare are already progressing to the final on June the 5th as contrasted by Wexford pulling off the great escape on the last day of the Leinster Championship it seemed unlikely they would qualify after being held against Westmead but Wexford pulled off a win at their great rivals Kilkenny uh, to qualify for the All-Ireland Championship and now they await the losers of the Joe McDonough final uh, Liverpool go in search of yet another miracle just below that Wexford piece and then you can see Paul Kimmage on the top banner his piece around Saipan, which we're going to be talking about. Also, Paul Rowan has been writing about Saipan and John Delaney in The Times today too. We move to The Sunday Times. Uh, Their front page is up for grabs, Manchester City against Liverpool on the final day of the Premier League season. All framed as Klopp versus Guardiola too. And you've got Wexford claims surprise win over Kilkenny. And also Jonathan Norcroft has been writing about the letter which has been sent, which effectively becomes an official appeal to the Premier League uh, from both Leeds and Burnley, who are fighting against relegation, that they want Everton to be investigated for potentially breaking financial fair play rules because their losses during COVID were written off. But Everton were in a pretty perilous financial situation. It looks like if they're to face any penalties, it will be next season rather than now. So you can understand why both of those Premier League strugglers will be looking to try and get in ahead of the final day of the season. But that still in it, you can see... Ushin Foley of Wexford, their goal scorer from yesterday on the back page of the Irish Mail on Sunday after their victory at Nolan Park to qualify. Also, Rory Keane has an exclusive interview with the incoming Munster head coach, Mike Prendergast, who says he's excited by their young talent and also the potential they have to play different styles of rugby. Munster beaten on the pitch by Leinster in the URC last evening and Munster will go to Ulster in the quarterfinals of that competition. It's the showdown. Can Stephen Gerrard hand a trophy to his old club by beating City? And the angle that's been taken by many is the fact that Philippe Coutinho and Danny Ings could do their old club Liverpool plenty of favours. Gold standard boxers get subpar coverage is something we're going to talk about. Very little coverage of Lisa O'Rourke or Amy Broadhurst in the papers themselves, but Mark Gallagher has been writing about the fact that it wasn't on television during the week. And second string blues swat aside Munster. That is the Leinster against Munster game in the URC last evening. Now taking a look through the uh, tabloids then in the Sunday World today, villain to hero, Stephen Gerrard has got a chance to hand the Premier League title to Liverpool. Although John Aldridge, the former Republican 
Republic of Ireland and Liverpool striker says, sorry, fellow pool fans, I can't see City not winning the title. Munster smash, two of Cork, Waterford and Tip going out of the championship today is Sean McGoldrick's piece on the back of the Sunday World. Mead, Tip and Monaghan are in shambles, according to Pat Spillant. That is ahead of the draw for the first round of the qualifiers tomorrow. Also plenty of writing about the Talton Cup. Second game taking place today. Only a couple of hundred people were at Wicklow versus Waterford yesterday. Manchester United, Pep so happy rivals back City, but wants them to bear blue. So he's saying Pep Guardiola wants the City fans to party like it's 99, but in this case in blue. And also plenty of writing about Antonio Conte and the job that he has done at Tottenham Hotspur and the fact that Tottenham may now look to extend his contract if he gets them into the top four. All they have to do is avoid defeat today in their game away to Norwich who are already relegated uh, Stevie G with OD Stevie God again I think most of the newspapers are kind of hoping for a bit of drama this afternoon that Aston Villa won't be a few goals behind uh, early on in that game and Ten Hock eyes De Jong as first signing this is Steve Bates an exclusive in the Sunday People we spoke to Andy Minden about this midweek uh, that it looks like uh, Frankie De Jong is a serious uh, transfer target for Manchester United the former Ajax midfielder but they would need to pay somewhere around 80 million euro to cash strap Barcelona if they're to sign him and then God of the Cop is again Stevie G on the back of the Irish Sunday Mirror. A pep party invite for United, but wear blue is coming from his press conference. And also, they got to sneak in uh, very late. There must have been a copywriter quite late writing this. Seamus Power in contention going into the last day in the PGA Championship. Understandably, there's not a huge amount of golf in the papers because of the late finish at Southern Hills. But Kieran Cunningham is here with me. We've also got Gavin Casey on the line as well. How are you getting on, lads? Great. Super, thanks, Will. Kieran, do we start with Saipan? I mean, it's been a weekend for us. The yeah, nobody's ever mentioned it before, no. so it's fresh. We no. should talk about it's it. It's not the most talked about thing in Irish sport of no. all time, and probably the most divisive <laughs> story in Irish sport of all time. Uh, yeah, most divisive. Well, it was most divisive at the time, but I think I would hope with the passage of the years that uh, the vast majority of people just uh, see how ludicrous it was to get so head up over this. Um, they, you know. Really, why didn't somebody just knock their two heads together and just say cop it on, cop yourself on, and that that it became a de facto civil war with everybody in expressing opinion on it? You know, was just it was just ludicrous when you look back, and uh, I think it was very reflective of the time because it was the time of the Celtic Tiger, which was the time of great notions. So it turned into a Mickey waving competition that you had all these uh, millionaires and billionaires offering their private jets to fly Roy Keane back out. And apparently Bertie O'Hearn, who was Taoiseach at the time, he, he was offering the service of the government jet. And who was flying the government jet at the time? Jim Gavin. Which oh, wow. had been an interesting story if Jim Gavin <laughs> flew Roy Keane back to the Far East. But it never happened. But it was all in Celtic Tiger, Ireland. There was this thing like there's a great book by Anna Marie, Marie Hurahan that came out a couple of years before that called She Moved Through the Boom. And kind of the notions people got like an obsession with coffee, how that where that came from and how that built an obsession with wine. Everyone Those were two, two jobs, two yeah, houses, two chapters, the whole decking thing and all that that David McWilliams would go into. But Roy Keane was supposed to rep- represent Celtic Tiger Ireland. Mick McCarthy, the FBI, supposedly represented old Ireland, that it was a shoddy that'll do mentality. But the reality is. Roy Keane was in a bad way when he went to Saipan. He he'd he'd had he picked up a serious injury against Deportivo La Coruña in the Champions League quarterfinal, and he was struggling for fitness. Um, he'd stopped drinking for quite a while at that stage, and he went to an island, which was a party island, like one of the first things you saw, 
and also was an island that was geared towards sex tourism. Like there were there were brothels everywhere, there were massage parlours everywhere, there were ads for escort services everywhere. You know, one of the things that was organised was an infamous barbecue that turned to an all-night drinking session. And if you talk to even more recent Ireland players, like David Ford's talked very well about that, this... There's been a huge drink culture around the Ireland national team for for years and years. And at the time, Keane was trying to stay away from drink. Like, he'd cut that out of his life. And I think that all fed into where he was. He was in a bad place. His relationship with uh, with Mick McCarthy was always troubled. And I think it was in the ready... uh, It was going to explode on a few occasions and eventually did in Saipan. And I'm one of those who was in Saipan but wasn't in Saipan. How how are you in Saipan and not Saipan? Yeah, because Saipan... Saipan wasn't just about the, the week in Saipan. Saipan was also about the week in Izumo, where Izumo in Japan, where we went for a training camp, because that's where all the efforts by Niall Quinn to get him back. That's where Tommy Gorman interview in RTE was relayed to us all out in Izumo. So it all kind of dragged on. It wasn't just what happened to Saipan. Saipan was only really a starting point. Like it dragged on for much of that World Cup. And actually, if you ask me my memories of that 2002 World Cup, this sums up the sourness and stupidity of it to me, is that I, I was walking on after the draw with Cameroon and Ibaraki. I was walking on to the plane and I passed Clinton Morrison, who was sitting beside one of McCarthy's staff members. And I kind of nodded like Clinton would talk to everybody, like even me, like he was friendly. <laughs> but he, Clinton kind of nodded because you'd half recognise you. The staff member stood up. And he took a step forward and he just eyeballed me uh, face to face. And I, he, he didn't say anything and I didn't say anything. So when I took my seat on the plane, I was just thinking about it. I thought, that's very odd. Like, what the hell was that about? And then I just thought, oh, maybe I'm imagining, like, maybe he was just looking for someone, whatever. But then the day after, in another country, in Seoul, in, North, in South Korea, the day after, a morning after Ireland had lost on penalties to Spain, we were heading home uh, via Amsterdam. You know, it was going to be a long trip. And I, I, I thought I'd try and grab a few a few uh, 40 winks of sleep. I was knackered. And I, I just kind of nodded off and I got a tap on the shoulder. And it was the same McCarthy staff member. And he just said to me, I've never met you. I've never talked to you. I just want to say, I think you're a... And he said a word that you can't even say after the watershed on radio, right? And uh, it was over uh, whatever I'd, whatever side or whatever stuff I'd written around Saipan. Had like you it, written very pro-keen? That it he was, yeah. It was more on the pro-keen side, yeah. But, like, that would have changed over the years. Where I said, like, I don't have a start. I see right and both sides wrong and both sides. And I think, really, it should have been sorted out. But, but it just, it really struck me that this guy, you know, was involved with the Ireland team and he's just going out of the World Cup. And this is what is in his mind. And this was what is on his mind after the Cameroon game as well, the opening game, that it just, the whole thing just became ludicrous. You know, it really did. It's, I don't think it, uh, anybody came out of it well. And the funny thing is, Paul Rowan has a piece on as well. Everything goes back to Saipan. There would be no John Delaney without Saipan. That's where he became to, came to prominence because he was the most senior FAI official back in Dublin. So he had to do all the press things here. And he kind of grabbed that as an opportunity. And everything came on from that because of it. He was, uh, you know, the Genesis report and the cause for change and everything. Uh, uh, John Delaney came to the fore. Steve Staunton would never become Ireland manager without it because he got it because he he took on the leadership role among the players after Keane left. That's how he became Ireland manager. There would never have been a Giovanni Trapattoni or a Martin O'Neill Roy Keane management team without it because Delaney... Uh, 
brought Dennis O'Brien in. You Without know, that the, private the, funding, those these were all, yeah, and, 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 yeah, and these were all related to the changes after Saipan. So, so much goes back to a couple of mad days on that island. Yeah, because we'll talk about Paul Rowan's piece in a moment. It's amazing how John Delaney was almost emerging as the new FAI on the back of then. And then eventually John Delaney will be seen as the old FAI. And now you've got a new FAI again. The cycles are almost directly related to what happened in Saipan. For you, Gavin, I mean, there's two very interesting stories here today. The Paul Rowan piece, which we'll talk about the uh, payment which was being inserted into Mick McCarthy's contract, which had ripple effects throughout the FEI in a moment. But also we've got Paul Kimmage's piece. In fact, uh, Kieran has it open on the desk in front of me here, which is about darkness and light and a bit of a introspective look into Roy Keane. I kind of thought there might be more Saipan coverage, but we've got two tasty enough pieces uh, to kick off the review today, Gavin. Yeah, they're, they're both brilliant. Uh you know, I, conceptually, when the 20-year anniversary was approaching us, I kind of thought to myself, like, ah, oh, here we go. You know, I, I, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. And I was saying to a friend of mine yesterday, I turned 30 in July. And we've been talking about this for two-thirds of my life, like, we're almost without break, you know. Um, so the idea that we even need to mark it as an anniversary, I completely understand why we are and, and why it is topical again, but it's almost like flogging the bones off a dead horse at this point, to my mind. And Paul, both Pauls have done exceptionally well to dig out some new material or new anecdotes. And I guess that's what people are tuning in for is when people are discussing it at the moment, it's just like, is there anything about this story that I don't know after 20 years? It's interesting, like the, um, how much of a divide it was, like I was nine at the time. So I'm kind of thinking of it from a slightly different vantage point to Kieran, who was over there and to all of the writers who I would read who've got these personal anecdotes. Like I was literally in class, in third class of uh, primary school, came out the schoolyard gates and my mother told me uh, Roy Keane is after being sent home from the World Cup or he had left the squad or whatever. And I literally broke down into tears. He was a, a childhood hero of mine. And, you know, I looked around the yard as parents were breaking the same news to their sons and daughters and a lot of similar reactions, you know, it's... Um, it kind of felt like, uh, you know, I, it was genuinely a where were you moment. And even as a nine-year-old, you could actually feel the gravity of the situation. It's probably the first time we became aware of even talk radio because for the first time I was listening to the news or listening to uh, sports talk shows just to hear what the latest was. It was kind of not pre-internet, but sort of pre-broadband and pre-smartphones and that kind of thing. So you were actually reliant on news bulletins nearly to find out what was going to be the next development and uh I, I i have to say like i share a lot of kieran's sentiment towards it now which is just like how did nobody properly intervene and just not diffuse the situation even but actually just explicitly explain to both of them the uh, importance of their prospective reconciliation within the context of that tournament and how far we might have gone also i think it's interesting upon reflection just to note how even though it was so divisive. Like, so to illustrate that, I was down in West Cork it, the following August. Again, I'm nine years old. I was wearing a, a Republic of Ireland World Cup 2002 jersey with six on the back. And I was just minding my own business, actually playing a game of pool with a friend of mine. And this gentleman from Dublin, I think, or somewhere in the region, looked at me and said to a nine-year-old child, like, what are you doing wearing that jersey? <laughs> and I was like, it's, I don't know, man, you know, I just got dressed today. This was on my bedroom floor. I'm nine, you know, and like, it was almost as though he had taken personal offense at the fact that this child or whoever it might be 
still seem to be offering some uh, modicum of support for Roy Keane. And bear in mind, he was in Cork, you know what I mean? So he was likely to come across a few. But even after the tournament then, for as much as it was divisive, and it almost felt at the time 50-50 in terms of which side he came down on, Ireland went to Moscow in Euro 2004 qualifying in their opening game, got hockeyed 4-2, were probably lucky actually to come away with only a 4-2 defeat. And by the time they'd lost to Switzerland at Lansdowne Road in the following game, the crowd was singing, there's only one Kino at the end of that game. Obviously, it transpired to be Mick McCarthy's last game in charge, but I just think it's interesting how it swung from being almost 50-50 in the divide to... I'm not saying that there was a, a, a universally pro-Keen sentiment after that, but I think there was a cognizance among most people that McCarthy's role in it was damaging and that, like, actually, we do badly need Roy Keane at the end of the day, no matter, like, regardless of the circumstances of his departure. Yeah. Um, if, if Kieran has the, the Kimmich piece open there, I actually don't have it open in front of me in a hard copy. I was reading it online, but it's a brilliant piece on the actual, as you say, a, a kind of an introspective look at Keane himself. Yeah. Um, Kieran, when it comes to this piece, typically in Kimmich style, it begins with an anecdote really of him going over to try and chase an interview with Roy Keane, <laughs> not just on one occasion, on a couple. You've got It starts with the first attempted interview in 1994, going through to him going over to a game where yeah. Manchester United were due to play against Sturm Graz in 2001. And again, Keane proves this slightly elusive figure, which is uh, how Paul is able to set the scene for us here. Yeah, and he, like he references a lot of stories that I kind of forgotten about and cover. One of them was about uh, Anna Freel, the actress uh, in a nightclub, mentioning Keen chapping her up and that he was very rude, and I, <laughs> that had completely uh, slipped my mind. But yeah, like uh, Keen was always uh, difficult to deal with. Like like he, uh, the the third secret of Fatima was Roy Keane's phone number, and anybody who ever passed on his number, he cut all ties with him. Mm. You know, like, so it, uh, you know, there, there was a piece with Noel Spillane, uh, formerly of the Examiner in the, in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago, and uh, he detailed how uh, Keane had told him something in nightclub about the move to Man United, and he printed it. You know, he had to print, like, it was such a big story. And they had a great relationship from the Forest days. They used to go, you know, they socialised together. He's never spoken to him since. You know, that's, you know, that's the way Keane would be, but... You know, there's all sorts of things like there's references in this. Do you remember the famous photograph after the Netherlands, the win over Netherlands that Lorraine O'Sullivan of Info took? The most awkward handshake until yeah, until the recent one in Salt <laughs> Hill. Yeah. With Keane turning away because uh, Paul Kimmage brings that in. But it's interesting. Because have you ever seen the video footage of that of that handshake? I've I think only recently saw it on YouTube. Yeah. And it shows you how a photograph can be misleading because yes. he actually Keane is walking off. He sees out of the corner of his eye McCarthy, McCarthy. Coming, towards kind of coming towards him. Yeah. Yeah. And he turns around and he actually does shake his hand, look him in the eye. Yeah. And Lorraine obviously snaps it when he's turning away again. So but but as he says himself in this, it summed up the relationship. I had no respect to him. But funny enough, during during lockdown, because, you know, it was a time the first lockdown two years ago when there was no sport on at all. So we were all looking for which is why, Which is why I think I, I said in this very show yesterday, I have a slight fatigue about Saipan. Yeah. Because it feels like almost every anniversary has been marked, particularly since 2000, yeah. by a piece on Saipan. Yeah, because we like we revisited just two years ago because, you, you know, you had to um, you had to come up with content week after week when there was so much space. And for that, it, I talked to, I, I did a piece with Paul Kimmage on his memories of it. And... Uh, it's quite interesting, like because he mentions here um, he showed he showed Mick uh, show, sorry showed Roy Keane that photo 
of uh, the the famous handshake or non-handshake with Mick McCarthy as it was painted. And he said, you know, does that mean you dislike him? No, I don't dislike him. I push it again. Do you respect him? And he says, no, I probably not. But when I when I uh, Paul brought that up as well when I was talking to him, and this is what he said at the time, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. He said after that, um, uh, after that, he bumped into uh, Keane again in the, the lobby of the hotel, and he came over to him and he said, "Listen, can you leave that bit out?" He had second thoughts about it, and that showed he figured it would cause problems at the World Cup. Like he was still very much intent on playing at the World Cup as well. And like there's a little, I think it kind of touches on this a bit, you know, that uh, Paul, that he finds it very frustrating. He had a very good interview, but the one with Tom Humphreys and Irish Times came out ahead of it and because he was working for a daily paper, etc. And I asked, uh, I asked uh, Paul, why on earth didn't he give it to the Irish Independent? You know, because I, I, I couldn't figure out how anybody... You know the, the the editors, the journalists involved could think they could sit on something like You're that for a few with, days with bombshell information, yeah, particularly in, in the pre-social uh, media age, where yeah. if you can get in the newspaper first, that was the most important thing. Yeah, at the time. yeah, that's what. So he said, um, uh, "This is what Paul said: We hated the Daily. It's not like we are now, where there's a sense of a communal group there. They were probably enemy number one back then. It never crossed my mind to go to the Daily. It was a regret afterwards, a serious regret. I was devastated by it that." I'd lost out on it, that it was an afterthought. I thought it was a better interview. I thought there was more about a minute. I was absolutely gutted. The impact on me personally, I left the paper because of it. Mm. And that's related to something he brings up as well, because there was a blurb. It was a throwaway line by Roy Keane saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kim and Justin burst to two. Kim and keep, keep that thought. I will, for a yeah, you we'll take a short break. We're going to come back and talk more about Saban in a moment. Welcome back to the Sunday pay-per-view here on Off The Ball. We are still talking about Saipan because uh, two of the biggest stories across the Sunday papers today relate to Roy Keane versus Mick McCarthy and Saipan. We're talking about Paul Kimmage's piece just a few moments ago. We'll talk about Paul Rohn's uh, very interesting one on the rise of John Delaney as a net result of what happened in Saipan effectively. Uh, but we can just take a clip here from yesterday's Off The Ball. This was David Myler who was speaking on Saturday's Off The Ball about Saipan and his take was no matter which side you fall on, whether it's pro McCarthy or pro Keane, that Saipan changed things for the Irish national team entirely. Do you think they both regret it now? Um, the one question I always had, JD, that I would love to ask Roy was if he hadn't played in the 94 World Cup, would he made his piece and played? Hmm. Um, yeah. That was one thing I always wondered if he hadn't played in that World Cup, because obviously he experienced the World Cup and he had those highs. Um, if he hadn't, would he have left? The two, they're two strong-minded men that you know believe they were both right. Um, I don't think it would ever come to a conclusion that either would look back and kind of say, like you know, like anything you see with Roy, Roy won't change his mind. Like he believed he was right. He believed that the standards should have been higher. Um, obviously, the big thing about the equipment or whatever. Um, then obviously there was that little personal thing with Mick about, you know, Roy feigned an injury, um, which Roy obviously wouldn't like. Because um, that goes against your characters, kind of a, as a player and a person, which is everything he would be against. Um, like you've got a man who is obviously captain of Manchester United, who are very successful, were winning league titles year in year out. Um, he wanted the same at Ireland. I imagine it drove him mad. If you looked at the players he played with, certainly they had a whole host of England players who were obviously going to ever every major tournament. He was 
And he wanted that for Ireland. Um, like a lot of people won't realise, he, after what he did in Saipan, it basically, it basically changed a lot of the following Ireland teams that, you know, came after him. Certainly yeah. in my time that, you know, standards were improved, pitches were improved, equipment was improved. Everything went up tenfold because of what Roy did. Um, and he was, inevitably, he was the martyr. He was the one who, you know, demanded better um, in those small details. And the rest was benefited in the long run from him doing that. Kieran Cunningham, I saw you shifting in the chair while yeah, listening to David uh, Moyler. Go on. Yeah, it's just when he, he brought, funny enough, when he brought up the 1994 World Cup, it just reminded me... Um, that a lot of what happened with Roy Keane was rooted in his experience there. Like a lot is rooted in even going back earlier, like he always had a troubled relationship with uh, national team managers at underage, like that he was often overlooked in, in his own view unfairly and he was probably right in that. But in 94, uh, I was working in London at the time of sports editor, the Irish edition of The Sun and their offices used to be over there. And Robert Reid went to that World Cup for The Sun for for the Irish edition and Robert Reid got to say, I remember Robert ringing to say there was a big row at training with Roy Keane and Morris Setters, Jack Charlton's assistant. And uh, at the time, uh, Jack Charlton had gone off to scout Norway, so he wasn't a trainer that day. So we went with it on the on the back three pages, and I think it might have been the front page as well. And Jack Charlton went ballistic when he heard about it. And he, uh, you, might, you might have heard about this, but he dragged Roy Keane into a press conference to deny that it had ever happened. I remember that happening. And yeah. it had happened. Roy knew it happened. And he was put. He was only a young player then. Like he ended up being voted Ireland's best player. Out, but he, I think he, he wrote about in his own autobiography that he felt humiliated by that, having been forced to lie over something. And, that, you know, that, you know, there was an aftershock to that as well that, um, uh, and it tells you a lot about the way the, media, the relationship between the media and the Ireland setup used to be that Jack Charlton had a couple of kegs of Guinness in his room. And he asked journalists up to the room who were covering Ireland at the World Cup up to have a few pints with him. He asked them all except Robert Reid because he ran the story and he did his job. You know, and he ran, it was a big story. It was a significant story. And, uh, you know, people kind of can be sentimental and nostalgic about the way things used to be. But that was an unhealthy relationship. You know, you shouldn't be sidelined for doing your job. And you shouldn't really be. Is it a great thing to be drinking pints in a manager's room? No, like maybe there should always be a remove. It's a good point because that came up about Saipan too. This idea there yeah. was a barbecue with the journalists that the journalists were allowed to go and mix with the players and almost like they were embedded in it. Um, yeah. It's uh, different times. Doesn't happen now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you had basically, and you even related there where one of Mick McCarthy's staff is sitting two seats behind you on the plane and can yeah. spot you. The back then, it was like travelling with the team. Yeah, we used to travel in the same. Like, like actually, one of the sadnesses of, of this story looking back, I was thinking is how many people involved have passed away because Ray Tracy was the travel agent at the time and he would organise a package trip for media and the FEI. John White, the guy in Saipan who met Ray Tracy, he was an Irish guy, he, uh, you know, he, he he encouraged him to move them to Saipan. He's passed away. Brent McKenna, the FAI press officer. Milo Corcoran, the FAI president, who, who was at that infamous press conference after the blow up. Uh, Michael Kennedy, our, uh, Roy Keane's agent, Bill O'Hurley. Trusted confidant. Yeah, yeah, Bill O'Hurley, good sports journalist of the year for his coverage of the 2002 World Cup. Bill has gone a lot. So there's a lot of the. Fraser Robertson, a really nice guy, worked for Sky. He used to cover Ireland around that. He died of cancer, 38, 39. So when I look back on that, it's it's with you know a fair bit of melancholy because it just, 
you know, it, it, it kind of hammers home what can happen in 20 years. You can lose a lot of people. Oh, for sure. Um, Gavin, can we talk about the other Paul then, Paul Rowan's piece, which is in uh, the Sunday Times today, which talks about the rise of John Delaney and uh, Machiavellian intent in the background, I think is the subheading on this one, and how in many ways a conversation that takes place around Mick McCarthy's contract had a huge effect through basically those who were sitting at the top of the FEI, which allowed a very young John Delaney, who was there as a financial controller at the time, to, on the back of Saipan, become the most powerful man in Irish football. Yeah, there are two powers in the speech, which I abs- piece which I absolutely love, and they probably encapsulate the extent to which Delaney was able to use this Saipan situation as a vehicle with which he could propel himself to the very top of Irish football. And like you can almost hear the gears turning in Delaney's head as, as Paul writes these couple of parts. He says, as honorary treasurer, Delaney was the youngest member of the FAI board when Saipan exploded, and he seized control in Dublin while those around him were in a flap. Media from around the world were crammed into the small front room of the FAI's headquarters in Merrion Square, and Delaney addressed them with the FAI Honorary Secretary and UEFA Deputy Vice President Des Casey largely silent beside him. Delaney was composed and disarmed everybody with his admission that it was madness that Ireland's best player was leaving the camp. John thought he had done a fantastic job, says John Byrne, another senior FAI figure who was sitting alongside him. Then his phone starts ringing and Eamon Dunphy and Vincent Brown are looking for him. The following day, I said to Casey, we're after launching this guy now. Apparently, he was on the phone to Michael Kennedy and he wouldn't tell me what was going on. So uh, a couple of snappy paragraphs about that really, um, yeah, drive home the, uh, the degree to which Delaney was able to use this, which like, is something I've only become aware of probably in recent years uh, when Delaney has been a more prominent figure in media and particularly with Paul's book as well, uh, Champagne Football. But like, it's interesting just to note how a guy that young at the time was as opportunistic as he was. And listen, we know how things transpired in the intervening years or in the, the following years, but um, what a mad time to be even thinking of yourself is, is what I'd be thinking reading this uh, piece by Paul. Yeah, and this £100,000 payment, which was being discussed over a drink in a bar with McCarthy at a fairly crucial time because his stock couldn't be higher. Like, even after what happened in Saipan, the Republic of Ireland are after getting a draw against Germany. They're on course to qualify for the knockout stages of the World Cup and his contract is coming towards an end. Maybe this explains a little bit too why Giovanni Trapattoni was given a contract ahead of a tournament as opposed to negotiations taking place in a bar during the tournament. But the 100000 payment for exceptional performance, I believe is the quote that was used, uh, then becomes a major stickling point in the story here, Gavin. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Like, just to... Uh, I, I, again, I think this was detailed in Champagne Football as well. There's probably a little bit more detail here that, that Paul has added on. Over a drink at the bar, Delaney had suggested to McCarthy that he asked for an exceptional performance bonus to be tagged on to a new contract, which had already been verbally agreed some months earlier, except for some haggling over a boot contract. The following day, Gaskin says he met Delaney for a coffee where the offer was repeated and, as some mentioned, uh, £100,000. Obviously, exceptional performance is pretty subjective, isn't it? I, I'm not entirely sure how they would have determined what would be exceptional and not at that World Cup. Could you argue that to get out of a group uh, involving Cameroon and Germany, particularly without your captain, is an exceptional achievement? Maybe. They came pretty close, obviously, against Spain. But yeah, the, the legacy of it is is crazy. I mean, Kieran mentioned it probably 20, 25 minutes ago now. And even David Moyler talking about the legacy, I suppose, for future Ireland teams uh, from, from Keane's actions as well. Like, it's very much the... It's almost... This story feels like the centre of the Irish sporting universe and so much has kind of sprouted from it. It feels like 
not only kind of a seminal moment, but um, I don't know, it, it, it defined an era and continues to define eras probably in its aftermath. Yeah, I mean, it's coming up in quite a few of the YouTube comments over the last while as well, just saying like it's remarkable and maybe says a lot about Irish sport that we are now talking about this 20 years on and it never seems to go away. And despite that, Kieran, in all of this, Mick McCarthy and Roy Keane in the 20 years or so that have gone by, have not exactly changed their position. I'm thinking of Mick McCarthy was sitting in that very chair talking to Joe Malloy a couple of years ago after he left the Republic of Ireland job and he pretty much said, I don't really want to talk about Saipan, but mm. I'm sticking with where I was. Roy Keane, I think both of us sat in, sat in the board gosh when himself and Gary Neville uh, were in town a couple of years back too. And Roy Keane, from the 2025 minutes he spoke about it, no regrets about his action, no regrets about his actions in the way he spoke to Carlos Quiroz a couple of seasons later yeah. when he bombed out of Manchester United. Neither of these men have really changed their position in the two decades since. No, they're too stubborn, man. You know, and, and uh, that stubbornness um, played a large part in in the successes they made out of their careers. But uh, I would think deep down they should have regrets. Like if Roy Keane was, was there and he was reasonably fit, like he was struggling with injuries, I said, it was a weird World Cup, you know. You look at the the shock ex- early exits of uh, you know the likes of France, Italy, Spain. Um, that who knows what would have happened. And uh, for McCarthy, you know, the thinking might be, you know, if I had Keane, what would we have done? And the thinking for Keane was, if I just kept my mouth shut, what would we have done? But yeah. I think deep down they possibly regrets, but I don't think they'll ever admit to. No, I don't think so either. You it know, is. Well, Go on, Gavin. Just add to that, like. At this point, after two decades, if one of them admits out loud to anybody that they have regrets, it means they've lost. You know, <laughs> We're talking about it, Keane versus McCarthy. That's how you described it at the top of the show. And it still sort of feels like that, even though they've had interactions in the intervening years. But if you back down at this point, it means two decades of stubbornness were worth nothing and, and you're coming out on the wrong end of it. And I don't think either of them, I think they'll take it to their deathbeds, that stubbornness and that insistence that what they did was right, even if deep down they, they might not feel the same way yeah and taking that back to Paul Cambridge's point where he says that maybe in some ways Roy Keane almost battles with himself it's one of Roy Keane's great strengths and possibly one of his weaknesses when people look at him on a human level that he is as stubborn as he is I mean again at the board gosh he mentioned the fact that even when Alex Ferguson who was you know he was his general on the pitch Alex Ferguson when he got sick Roy Keane still hasn't contacted him since and says that he won't speak to Alex Ferguson again unless he apologises for what he wrote about Roy Keane in his autobiography so that's the point that Roy Keane digs his heels in and I don't think he has any regrets about that either so we'll park Saipan there um, some good reading on Saipan today though on the 20th anniversary of the blow up um, let's have a chat Gavin I'll give you a first shout on this because we spoke about this on the radio the other night um, gold standard boxers get subpar coverage which is uh, Mark Gallagher's piece in the Daily Mail today it is on page 72 and we've got the picture there of Lisa Rourke and Amy Broadhurst after getting their medals in Turkey uh, during the week and the headline is our golden generation is being shamefully ignored Ireland's most successful sport is not getting the coverage it deserves now this centres around the lack of TV coverage for the World Championship finals which were on where Broadhurst and O'Neill both won gold medals and also he quotes in the middle of the piece Emmett Brennan the Tokyo Olympian who tweeted about the fact that last year the European cross country the European under 23s athletics the Six Nations under 20s Ireland and England in the hockey were all shown on RT but we couldn't see the world championship on our TV screens and had to watch it on YouTube during the week are you still in the same opinion you were three days ago that this was a huge huge opportunity missed to actually showcase Ireland's latest two world champions yeah, to be honest, a couple of days ago, I was still basking in the glory of the two gold medals, and I hadn't even given a huge amount of thought about the 
TV coverage or lack thereof until you and I were speaking, but I feel even more strongly about it now. Emmett made a good point there, like about just the degree to which other sports have been shown in recent years. And actually going back to a Twitter thread by Kevin Byrne of the Irish Sun, a brilliant boxing journalist, I think in advance actually of the Tokyo Olympics, he was talking about some of the Olympic sports that have been shown during that cycle and bearing in mind it was a five-year cycle. So uh, I have a the tweet here, I'm pretty sure he was saying, yeah, again, talking about rowing, swimming, hockey, track and field, even gymnastics, but boxing, nothing at all. Obviously, there was a, a legacy issue off the back of the Rio games. But I think when you look at the sheer number of sports that were shown, uh, Olympic sports that were shown in that cycle, and uh, it's hard not to, whether it is the case or not, it's hard not to feel as though there's a, a little bit of a gripe towards boxing, really, when you um, consider the international success the sport has brought this country, including only last week to blacklist it to the degree that it seems to be still feels strange to me i i find it off-putting and as i was saying last week a little bit embarrassing the thought that amy broadhurst and lisa o'rourke will be brought onto the late late show which is again a point that mark makes in a very strong piece but that we don't as a public get the opportunity to see them perform what they're actually good at like their reason for being on the late late whenever they show up on it will have been missed by the vast majority of people in the country and that to me it doesn't detract from the magnitude of the achievement whatsoever but it detracts from the kind of the adulation they might receive and that sort of sense of national sporting occasion and i was thinking afterwards as well following our chat will you know the odd time there you go down a youtube rabbit hole you might start looking at some of the great Irish sporting moments. Like I love playing back, say, Jason McAteer's goal against Holland. I, I just think George Hamilton nails the commentary in it. And uh, several moments like that, you think back to Jimmy McGee and Sean Bond, Brannock, Osquelga calling Katie Taylor's Olympic gold and loads more. But the idea that Amy Broadhurst and Lisa O'Rourke don't even have that highlight reel. They don't have Hugh Cattle calling it the way he called Kelly Arrington's goal last summer so brilliantly. So when they're watching it in future, it's uh, it's a British commentator, nothing against him whatsoever, but he was calling six finals in a row. So there's maybe a little bit of a, a Martin Tyler-esque fatigue in the sense that it's hard for him to capture the emotion of the moment when these moments are happening consecutively every few minutes. And just, you know, when they're sitting down, if they have kids or relatives or friends or whatever, like the fact that they don't, kind of don't have that iconic piece of commentary to match the, the size of their achievement bothers me. And just in a more fundamental sense then as well, you know, you see these athletes putting in all the work they're putting in and being cognizant of the fact that boxing has been good to us over the years. I feel as though we should be a little bit better to boxers and, and to the sport itself, despite all of its ongoing problems. Yeah, Kieran, a point to take up on that, though, while we've got, and I think Mark makes the argument very well within his piece, a severe lack of Broadhurst and yeah, yeah, like yeah. across the papers. Yeah, like, like that's, that's one of the first things I said to you because, it, you know, Mark is, is banging on what he says here. And, he, you know, he's given a page lead in the mail on Sunday to do it. But you look at the Sunday Times, there isn't a word on the two of them. There isn't a word in the Sunday Dependent. Um, uh, and I would have the, thought yesterday was a good chance to get them because yeah. I saw on social media, you know, throngs yeah, of crowds coming out to uh, cheer them home. And, you know, you look at the, like as Mark points out, um, you know, look at the, the back stories. Like O'Rourke was playing for Roscommon in the league, scored a goal and against Stout. to pay for them later this year yeah, too. Uh, so. And her, her, her grandfather was a GA president. Like there's lots of stuff to dig into. They're fascinating stories. And um, so just before we get to the RTE thing, it's a broader media coverage thing with boxing. 
And, you know, yeah, this is a great good news story in boxing and it should have got far more coverage across mm. the board. Like it's, it's unbelievable that there's no mention in a lot of the papers. But also last week you had um, 600 people were put in over 600 people are on the list that aren't allowed to enter the US because of the sanctions against the Kinahans. And according to the assistant commissioner, the Gardaí, most of those on the list are, 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 are involved in professional boxing. And that isn't mentioned in any paper today, not a single paper. And you can guarantee a lot of those names are Irish. Like I talked to a guy for something I'm working on. I talked to a guy in the US on Friday and he would be he would be well known in boxing circles. And he said this whole Kinnan and boxing thing, he to him, he said it's the biggest boxing story since the Second World War. He said there's been nothing as big. And he thinks the repercussions are huge, that people don't realise what's coming down the tracks, that a lot of stuff is going to come out and it will lead to struct huge structural change. Why do you think it's not in the papers then? Because well, like you I, both, you both have written about. Yeah, the well, part of it, I, I've always thought this, and I've talked to Billy Walsh about it in particular, and Emmett Brennan says I think there is a snobbery towards boxing. Like I think there are, there are, there are papers that rarely ever cover it. They've no interest in it, and they they look down their nose on it. They dismiss it out of hand as just being full of scumbags or whatever whatever words they want to use, but. It just uh, it beggars belief that you have two world champions. I doubt if there's ever been a world champion from Louth or Roscommon before in any sports, right? You go back to the 1932 Olympics. Dr. Pat O'Callaghan and Bob Tisdall both won Olympic gold in the space of an hour. It was always called Irish Sports Golden Hour. Mm. That was repeated 90 years later. It was actually, uh, I think it was short. I think it was half an hour. 45, give or or take. Yeah, yeah. half an hour, a bit more maybe. So you had another golden hour and it wasn't, it wasn't covered as much. Now, the, the, the TV issue is more complicated. I, I, I completely agree with Gavin. Boxing should, should, be on, uh, should be on a lot more. But I'd be curious how many terrestrial broadcasters covered these championships. Like I would say, it, it highlights uh, a bigger problem in that uh, sports coverage has been really squeezed down to soccer, golf, horse racing, rugby and an Ireland GA. You know, and there's very little room outside that. I would say in Ireland, the only two sports that are happy with TV coverage are rugby and horse racing. And funnily enough, they're the sports with a lot of money around them. Mm. Um, like, if you talk to League of Ireland fans, their main gripe is TV coverage. They want a highlights, weekly highlights programme, and oh, they, want, they want a live game every week and more thought put into what the live game is. GA fans want a highlights programme on Monday. They want Maybe a longer Sunday game yeah. on Sunday night. And they want a magazine programme. You hear that call all the time. Athletics fans want want far more coverage outside of major championships. Everybody is looking for more coverage. And uh, to be honest, the more I look at it, I think stations like national broadcasters, like RT, that aren't sports-specific stations, their future in sport, I, I wouldn't be dependent on them as a future of sports coverage. I think you have to be looking at sports specialists now because they're trying to juggle too many things in the air. And like I think RT should have made an effort last week, definitely, to show the championships. But you're trying to please too many masters now. They have a limited budget. And they... they uh, I don't know if the imagination there is there even to, to do what is possible. Like, even back in the day, sports stadium, you know, you would often see... I remember watching, uh, you know, Ireland v. England or Ireland v. France, amateur boxing internationals. They would be on on Saturday afternoon. It might be highlights or it might be live. 
you would see show jumping, you would see tennis, you would see badminton. Like there was, it was shows like that that would cover loads of sports. That's all gone now. Yeah, and I, I think probably the way that rights have been sold have changed it ever so slightly as well. If you look back yeah. at, say, Sports um, Stadium Saturday, incredible. Some of that footage is still there. Like, I think Killian Archive has got lots of it up on YouTube that they will literally seamlessly go from that's the latest from the Premier League to here's a few horse racing results yeah. and here's some rally covers that yeah. we got from during the week. Sure, there's an intro. Like, nobody ever talks about show jumping, but Ireland has a lot of world-class uh, performances in show jumping. Outside the horse show and the Olympics, show jumping has never shown... Mm. On RTE. So there's a lot of sports with the gripes there. And if there's one job in Irish sport I would hate, it's head of sport in RTE. Because you're banging your head against the wall and you would never keep people happy. Yeah, so. and you're making impossible decisions and you've got, you know, it shouldn't really happen that commercial considerations would be there. But they have to justify the fact that if they put on something that gets very few viewers, it's going to hurt their ads. It's going to hurt everything. Yeah, and they have but, to make those. But decisions. like uh, uh, the, the flip side is I've been on the judging panel for RT Sports Person of the Year for the last few years. And two years ago, Katie Taylor won. Mm. Right. And she was the first woman to win uh, world champions at amateur level last year. But for Rachel Blackmore, uh, who, who, who did something extraordinary. Uh, Kelly Harrington would have won it only for her. And Kelly was the second woman to win world championship. So RT, you know, you're lauding these people, but then there's two more world champions and they were largely sidelined, you know. And, and But it's largely been sidelined across a lot of media. It's not just an RT problem. Boxing, there should be a lot of boxing in the papers on two big stories. One a good news story, one a bad news story. And this weekend's papers and there isn't. Yeah. They almost are like a mirror to each other, you guess. Particularly with the Broadhurst story, talking about the fact that you know she was watching her brothers being very successful and always had that aim. Then, as Gavin outlined brilliantly during the week, she had a rivalry with Kelly Harrington. And then, this time around, Kelly Harrington's not there. And Amy Broadhurst, who was you know, once across the ring against her, now picks up a gold medal. And the two O'Rourke's have done just so well. And such great representatives for their area in Castlereagh and Roscommon. Great story. And then, even, you've got intertwined in this, that they were prepared for these championships by Bernard Dunn, who has yeah. now left his position at the IABA too. So it's a remarkable how many yeah, And that's why you, you would love to have, you know, c- coverage of it. So you had a panel on who could explain all that to people, mm. who could explain that this extraordinary success... And like people you, loved Eric yeah, Donovan and yeah, Kenny yeah. last summer. But if you list all the medals that had been won at different levels uh, uh, this year by Irish boxers, you know, uh, from underage up to Olympic and World Championship level, you know, it's an ex- extraordinary amount. But this has all gone on at a time of incredible upheaval in the IABA. And in, uh, in-house politics and infighting that's very hard to explain because it's so tedious and so complicated but if you had a good panel like Severic Donovan and uh, you know um, just to get into the nuts and bolts of this because it should be out in the open and it should be explained how these people are excelling despite all they have to deal with yeah achievement in adversity effectively we're going to take a very short break you're watching the Sunday paper review here on Off the Ball when we come back we're going to be talking about Rog versus Sexton that narrative is being set out very early this weekend already ahead of La Rochelle against Leinster and we'll also be talking about Phil Mickelson too Kieran Cunningham, the Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star and Gavin Casey of the 42.ie are with me to look at the Sunday papers we're moving from McCarthy versus Keane to Rog versus Sexton. The Warriors is how Peter O'Reilly, Peter O'Reilly even has headlined his piece on page 10 of the Times today. Saturday's final is the latest in a long line of showdowns between two legendary Irish fly halves. And Gavin, he takes the story right back to a flashpoint moment, which is also the picture that's used uh, just above the piece, which is Johnny Sexton roaring into Ronan O'Gara's face after a try that Leinster had scored against Munster in their Heineken Cup final back in Crow Park, uh, going back over 12 years ago, and uh, now at this point for that semi-final. 
And this appears to be the moment that things got a little bit frosty between two guys who would eventually work together in Paris, but would fight it out in the years after that semi-final for the starting berth under Declan Kidney as out half on the Irish team as well. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Saipan being a seminal moment and I actually don't think Munster recovered from that day in 2009 on a psychological level, really. But yeah, Peter's piece is really, really nice. To be honest, just zooming out briefly, Will, and looking at this final, like I'm glad that there is a little bit of a narrative to match with it or, or to apply to it because, you know, objectively, probably not the most enticing final in the world. Lens are probably victims of their own success insofar as like they are so good now, it's difficult to even talk about them beyond just praising nearly every individual player and every individual action in a game. We saw that again yesterday when you're going down three, four players in their depth chart and they're still jocking monster and you know at the Aviva. But like, you know, if it was just La Rochelle and if Raj wasn't involved, it's just not the most inspiring game to my uh, at least in my opinion. So to have that there, just it's a nice way of of um being able to tie the coverage in a little bit of a bow and obviously having an even more of an Irish focus than you would if Leinster alone were in the final. What's funny, I suppose, is the fact that like it's being dressed up as this Sexton versus Raj rivalry, which kind of hasn't, hasn't existed in reality for several years. But what has endured is the fact that both guys are, to an almost sociopathic extent, still competitive, you know, like I'm being facetious, obviously, but like they are just two of the most driven sports people we've ever had. And that probably married to create the fireworks that we saw in 2009 and for the, the couple of years afterwards. And like in Peter's piece, he says, it's generally assumed that the Franz Ferdinand moment came at that Heineken Cup semi-final in Croke Park when Sexton celebrated Leinster Troy by yelling in O'Gara's face, but he had been carrying a grievance for weeks. It's a pity I don't recall what I what I said to fire him, but as we know now, it doesn't take much, O'Gara wrote in his second autobiography. Sexton certainly remembered what had been said. During a mid-match scuffle in Thoman Park a month previously, Sexton had feigned to throw a punch at his opposite, opposite number. When O'Gara flinched, Sexton called him a coward. Call me a coward, O'Gara spat back. You're nothing. You're a nobody. Those words stung. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine how a young Johnny Sexton would have taken that. And I'd imagine he, he probably even still thinks about it the old time as he uh, continues to be a somebody, what is it, 13 years on. Yeah, and look, it's as you say, it's probably a seminal moment in that rivalry between Leinster and Munster, but also led, as goes a little bit later in the piece, Kieran, to, to effectively Rajcam, which uh, ended up on RT during their coverage of Ireland Internationals a couple of years later, where this young Johnny Sexton would become Declan Kidney's first choice. And nearly every time Johnny Sexton did something on the pitch, good or bad, whether it was a kick that was missed or one that went between the posts, there would naturally be a reaction shot of Ronan O'Gara sitting in the stand. Yeah, but uh, that's absolutely true. I think everybody will remember that from the coverage of those games. But something Peter O'Reilly mentions is uh, I think we could overlook that at times that O'Gara played 35 tests after Sexton's debut. You know, which took a lot of doggedness. Like only ten of those were starters, but one of those was a World Cup quarter final against Wales and Wellington, which really stung Sexton. And that says a lot about O'Gara that you know he didn't walk away. He really, he probably made Sexton what he what he became because he had to push himself so hard. Because one of the things I I, I think about that line of "You're nothing, you're a nobody," that they had very different career arcs. Like O'Gara was always seen as a superstar. I think coming up through the ranks. Where Sexton wasn't like in in in, uh, in Barry White's piece in the Sunday Business Post, like he kind of details that um, you know Sexton had made his made his debut for Leinster in two thousand and six with a fifteen minute cameo at the end 
of a game that had already been won against Border Reavers of Scotland. Uh, but that was his only game that season. He only played three the following season. He got a bit of momentum after that, but he was still mostly playing for St Mary's in the AIL. Like he had to come up in a, a tougher, a tougher way, you know. And it's uh, he was third choice ten behind Contepomi and Issa Nassau at Leinster, third choice for Ireland behind O'Gara and Paddy Wallace. And you know it's amazing now because it's not that long since the consensus was that O'Gara was great, Ireland's greatest ever out half. And now most people would think it's Johnny Sexton that he managed to, uh, you know. Reach, catch him up and then surpass him but uh, I thought that was a, there's a really interesting line about the O'Gara's competitiveness and sorry Gavin is Cork contrariness when uh, mentioned a news talk in 2020 and he was asked to pick O'Gara was asked to pick his best Irish player of the past decade and this was at a time you know after Sexton had been named World Player of the yeah, Year yeah. and he picked Key and Healy mm. you know and it's just, I don't think would anybody else have picked Keane Healy ahead of Sexton? I don't think so. Gavin, would you have ever had Keane Healy in a debate over Sexton? I would have had to think about it in fairness, but no, I, I would. I, I actually think not only is Sexton now Ireland's best ever at that, but I'd make the argument that he's Ireland's best ever player. And uh, I apologise if Mr O'Driscoll and a few more are, are tuned in, but um, I just think when you actually look at the duration of his career now, the fact that he hasn't really dropped off to any significant degree, the... Um, extent to which he remains integral to the national team and not only Leinster and just objectively eye test how well he kind of regularly plays still it's it's absolutely unbelievable not to mention obviously all of the individual accolades team accolades and so on but um you know with with Raj picking that I do kind of wonder is he half joking like I haven't heard the the clip or whatever um but you know like he's probably aware also that somebody's recording that and sending it to Johnny and they might have a chuckle over it. You know, like it's easy to forget. Obviously they shared a sort of a, a chapter of their respective careers at Racing where Raj was coaching, Sexton was playing, Sexton was picking Raj up, driving them to training. There's lovely footage of the two of them in Sexton's car, actually in um, Dave Burry and Nathan Nugent's documentary on Raj from 2014. And you just see, I mean, it's a peek behind the curtain and these two guys that we had imagined sort of warring behind the scenes for so long were basically reliant upon each other in this new world and their wives were friendly and, you know, it was kind of um, the passing of the torch had already happened really. But like as Kieran says and as Peter outlines in the piece, like Sexton was named to start against South Africa in a 2009 test against, excuse me, in a 2009 November test. And like Raj still played for what, like three, four more years after that? Still, and he, he was selected ahead of Sexton in a World Cup quarterfinal in 2011, you know? Like that 2009 game was the passing of the torch, but Raj just clung on. He's like, you're not getting the torch yet. And uh, that's a testament to how good a player Ronald O'Gara was as well. I think, like, if, if you look at, look at kind of objectively, like who is the better player between the two of them, you'd have to say Johnny Sexton having been World Player of the Year and having done now what he's done, Johnny Sexton is, is probably a better out half, even though very different game he's playing as well I'd acknowledge that but like I think Raj was an underrated player as well not only for what he achieved in his prime but the fact that he refused to let go and was still pretty bloody good until he did eventually pack it in yeah but, look Raj's involved in one of those seminal moments too Kieran 2009 that oh, uh, drop goal will never be forgotten yeah uh, probably the greatest day Irish sport this century um, because it was it was the day of the Bernard Dunn fight as well they could just uh so much went into that day. It was a very emotional, very memorable. 
Um, there, there, there's a great uh, there's a great little passage in in the Barry White piece in the Sunday Business Post, and it's uh, uh, going back to Saxon's book Becoming a Lion, and he, he details a bus journey to a Leinster match where he was talking to Brian O'Driscoll, and O'Driscoll was talking to him about the difficulties he had writing his own autobiography because he felt every time he was complimenting Sexton, it might feel like he was stabbing Rog in the back and vice versa. Uh, and the very next sentence, this, uh, just reading now, Sexton revealed his own deep insecurity, noting that O'Driscoll doesn't seem to have any problem going on about Rog having the bottle to kick last-minute match-winning drop goals or penalties. Then we go on. As fate would have it, in that very game, after that bus trip, Sexton found himself presented with a chance at a drop goal, which he duly scored. I nailed it when we won. And when the final whistle went, part of me was thinking, stick that in your book, Brian. <laughs> it's amazing how these elite athletes find motivation in ways like this. And Joe Canning, very interesting too, just thinking on a similar point, he's talking to Joe on the show a couple of Thursdays ago. And similarly, he was talking about how all of the talk and the noise around him pretty much inspired him and even back in 2017 there was a piece written and it seems fairly innocuous that it was players who need to have a big year was yeah it was Jackie Cowell Jack Cowell's piece in the 42, in the 42 and, yeah. and, uh, which is amazing to me Joe Canning has brought that up uh, three or four different occasions oh it's like, coming to in, mind a couple of, uh, in, in interviews in, uh, I think in a column in the Times um, uh, a couple of different interviews it's amazing it's stuck in his head because I know that was a filler of course. It was a winter filler that Jackie would have spent seven minutes at. If he, was, if he had seven minutes, he and might you, have spent five minutes And let's at. be fair, right? You stick Patrick Horgan and Canning in there to just give that little bit of extra spice yeah, for those who click it. But it's amazing because I, I always think about, because I heard him on a, during the week, uh, Jim McGuinness was in Tomas O'Shea's podcast, and he brought up uh, uh, an article from the Irish News when he took over the Donegal job, he showed the Donegal players that ranked Donegal 18th in the country. And Donegal were no way 18th in the country. It was just a filler, winter filler. And he's still bringing this up more than 10 years later. It's ama- It does stagger me often what people latch on to. And you think, you know, there was actually no thought put into that. As, as somebody who does power rankings here on OTB, they're never to be questioned. But yes, not a huge amount of thought goes into them, really. And then you end up getting DMs from people at 3 a.m. Uh, wondering why a team are in eighth as opposed to ninth position. And you realise it possibly matters uh, more to other people than it does to you yourself. But also I- I- intriguing, we'll be talking to James Scale after three o'clock about today's hurling. But just that Galway team, too, that Michal Donoghue had this one piece that they effectively you may as well put verbally onto the dressing room wall which was that they had been written off after a defeat against Wexford in the National Hurling League they went on to not lose again but Galway were called flops and bottlers because of the way they played against Wexford and they went on to win uh, Leinster and the All-Ireland Championship later that year so just interesting to see what keeps people ticking just enough with Johnny Sexton to not get mentioned about you know big moments stick that in your book Brian uh, you got to love that bit of detail which is in the piece uh, by Barry White in the Sunday Business Post today um, also worth having a look at today and Kieran, I'll give you a first shout on this back of the uh, Times again is the piece that David Walsh has written around Phil Mickelson and yeah. he ponders the question here generous and fun or a gambler devoid of humility Mickelson's fall from grace adds to the riddle of a man who remains a mystery even to his caddy of 25 years like really we should be talking about Phil Mickelson defending his PGA Championship title this week not to be he's got embroiled in the Saudi League and he's become a very, very interesting figure. But one, as Davis posits in the piece, it's very difficult to actually get a handle on who the real Phil Mickelson is here. Yeah, it is. Like uh, He makes the point here that, um, you know, uh, uh, he, he earned an estimated $900 million in uh, dollars in his career, which, you know, which close to making him a billionaire. But 
you know, uh, Alan Shipnuck's book, which David Walsh has, has read, I think advanced copies have gone out to various journalists for review. He says it's a terrific fun, a terrific read. But, it, you know, uh, it does mention his love of gambling, his passion for uh, big bets, and that between 2010 to 2014, he lost 40 million. So who knows over the years how much he lost? And maybe that, you know, maybe that's influenced his decision uh, to get in bed with the Saudis. And uh, like the Shipnock interview, like people might have heard about this, that he did an interview, an hour long interview with uh, Phil Mickelson, Alan Shipnock as a golf writer. And he he described the Saudis as scary mother effers, said they execute people for being gay. They have a horrible record in human rights, but claimed it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape the PGA Tour. And Mickelson uh, said that he was, you know, told Shipnock he was trying to get a better deal for the top players. And uh, as as an exercise in journalism, it's interesting because David Walsh goes into the detail of whether this was on or off the record. I think if you're being interviewed for a book, you're on the record. Yeah. And also, if you are getting stuff that's incredibly as juicy as that, can you just let it go? If you haven't asked the question, is this on the record? Like maybe it was never put to him. No, maybe nobody ever said this is on the record, but maybe uh, the journalist assumed it was and the, the golfer assumed it wasn't. But all right, who that knows? Who knows? We, do, we don't know. We're sitting down getting ready to write a book with somebody. Um, you do the interview. There's a juicy quote. You're thinking, maybe I'll hold on till I release the book in full. But then something presents an opportunity, like the fact that the Saudi League went right into the news cycle at the time. You're sitting on these juicy quotes from Phil Mickelson, which you believe were entirely on the record because the conversation was taking place. I don't know how informal the conversation was, but it was for the book. Yeah. You've got the chance to publish and you're going to sell millions more books because of the fact that you actually get this piece out. Of course you're going to put out in a timely fashion. Yeah, but it, like I know it's very different circumstances, but I know I've been in interviews and somebody has said something that you don't expect them to say and you know it'll cause waves. And you might like the person you're interviewing or feel a bit of sympathy towards them because you know you it, it could give a bit of heat. Well, I, I have or? at times that, uh, you know, are you sure you want that to go in? Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. But... Uh, but I, I would have no hard and fast rule on it, you know, but I just do know that there are times I have said that to people because I thought, oh, that's a bit tricky or that could be a bit tricky for them. And just say it back to me, sure, you're happy with that on the, uh, going on the record and mm-hmm. they'll give the response then. So I don't know what Gavin makes of that. What do you reckon, Gav? Always on the record if you're sitting down with a journalist having a chat? <laughs> no, certainly not always on the record. I think if you're sitting down doing a book with somebody, it's obviously a collaborative process and consequently i would consult with the person if i was going to go public with a few quotes in advance of the book so i'd understand if mickelson felt let down even if strictly speaking he might have been on the record in the within the context of that chat to be honest i don't have any great interest in in phil mickelson um i've been obviously watching the uh golf this week and i do feel as though in fairness the tournament is lacking for him like it's weird to have a, a competition where the defending champion isn't there because of you know comments he made but also the uh, maelstrom in which he found himself afterwards and it's also a little bit interesting to see like i'll be actually interested to see how much he's welcomed back if and when he does make that call at some point in the near future to actually return to the tour and play like rory McIlroy took a really hard stance against him after he had uh, well, after the comments had surfaced about uh, Saudi Arabia and also the fact that he was going to be supporting this Saudi back tour. And 
McIlroy was interviewed, I think, in advance of the first round, so probably on Wednesday uh, last week, and mentioned, yeah, you know, I know I came out hard against him, but uh, I kind of think, like, you know, it'd be good to see him back and had, like, completely softened, you know, and I wonder will that be a sort of universal sentiment, not only among his fellow pros, but among golf fans and even just kind of general sports consumers. Like, to what extent is a person's name blackened by comments to a journalist that may or may not have been on the record you know like can you move past it i suppose it depends really on the, the, the kind of um the approach he takes to address it if and when he does like if he comes out and says like the, how often do we see now like apologies from sports people but like there's no actual acknowledgement of wrong why wrong yeah. what why what they said was wrong so it's like I apologize for the offense that I've caused you, or, or I apologize if somebody took offense to what I said, but they don't actually break down why it might have been offensive. And like, I think if Mickelson was actually open about it and, and spoke about it in detail, he'd be back to normal and people would be like, yeah, listen, we all make mistakes. So that that's mildly interesting to me, but that's about all I have to say on it because I've only been faintly following it anyway. Um, it's fair enough. I mean, the thing that I find quite interesting in all this is that there's, a certain human side to it, if Phil Mickelson is having to get in bed with the Saudis because he has lost more money than we thought he had in some of his bets over the years, that he actually had a need to get involved. And, you know, David has made the point here about the fact that people were appalled that he could be flippant about the idea of human rights abuse in Saudi Arabia, but maybe a certain amount of realism kicked in from Phil Mickelson having to take the cash. What I find more interesting, Kieran, is when you've got people like Lionel Messi, who last week was in Saudi Arabia and getting involved directly with their government by taking money from their tourism division. Leo Messi doesn't need the money. No. Leo Messi's going to be probably, by the time he retires, the best paid sportsman of all time. Yet he still looks to take that bit of extra money. To me, that's proper sports washing if someone like Messi can be. Yeah, and David, David Beckham is an ambassador for the Qatar World Cup. You know, he's, he, he's taken, he, he's done that as well. And so many people within sport have. Uh, Greg Norman's never going to need to uh, work a day in his life. He's got, I think they were estimating five to six hundred million dollars in the bank already. Yeah. But yet he's happy to be the man at the front. Yeah, yeah. I think what the most damning thing in this uh, is uh, Mickelson's treatment of his longtime caddy, Jim Bones Mackay. And they, their relationship fractured over money. Like he'd been on the record and said he'd always look after him, you know, as much as he'd always looked after his own family, he'd look after Mackay and his family. But. He owed him $900,000. He was very slow to pay. Eventually co- coughed up 800000 And there's a quote from Mackay. He said, I, 20, I, I, I spent 25 years standing next to the guy. And he's still a total mystery to me. So so who, who knows what makes the guy tick? Also, you would think that a caddy player relationship, Gavin, should be the closest one possible, really, because you have to go through all of those emotional moments within the sport, all the travel together, the dinners after the good days and the bad days when you sit down. Usually, a caddy and the player that they're with are almost best mates. It's a therapist plus a friend. You would think that he would know Phil Mixon better than anybody. Absolutely. It probably shows the... Um, well, the, the Say with Mickelson's gambling and, and what Walsh outlines in his piece, like... You can never be sure, I suppose, what's going on behind the scenes with somebody, no matter how close you are to them. As you say, like, well, like it's it's such an integral relationship to a golfer's professional career, and actually to extend that to their life generally. Like, a caddy is almost a confidant and and a friend, as you say, rather than just an accessory or a, an extension of their um, of their play. But like, <laughs> as much as they are close, like, how often do we see these kind of? 
I wouldn't call them explosive partings of company or whatever, but like quite um, acrimonious splits between players and caddies. And it's usually the player at some point just snaps because they're pretty highly strong. It's a fairly stressful job, despite how it looks on TV sometimes. And like the caddy is usually the one to bite the bullet if something is going wrong. So like, and quite often it is like really close friends. A player might say a couple of years later how difficult it was to make the decision, but they still make the decision, you know? So I guess um, as much as, yeah, it's a very close and important relationship. It's also a pretty, Ten, not tenuous, but uh, maybe perilous one on behalf of the caddy as well. Mm. Well, look, that pretty much uh, rounds us up on the Sunday papers for today. Um, there are some pieces that we didn't get to have a look at, but I would probably recommend if you get a chance during the rest of the afternoon, including something we spoke about uh, this week uh, with Molsey on Monday on OTBAM. John Green writing in the Sunday Independent today about how bored he was at Croke Park last week uh, for the Leinster semi-finals. Also Colin O'Rourke uh, writing about the Talton Cup, which got underway uh, this weekend. Only a couple of hundred people uh, were at the game between Wicklow and Waterford yesterday. In the Observer, I spotted a really good piece with Chris Kamara which is one of the first long sit down interviews that he has done since leaving uh, Sky Sports and um, for a guy who's so happy in uh, Cami with his uh, kind of on air persona uh, he speaks about how difficult it's going to be for him where every week of the year pretty much was taken up uh, by being on Soccer Saturday going to games and the debilitating effect of the speech issues which he's going to have which is pretty much brought to an end prematurely his time as a much loved broadcaster I think that's well worth having a check out if you can uh, Rick Broadbent writing about Tiger Woods who had to withdraw from the PGA Championship uh, due to injury yesterday and he was really struggling to get around uh, the first two days of the PGA Championship that is well worth the check in the Sunday Times today and uh, of course plenty more pieces on the Talton Cup and on the hurling in Munster today including uh, the piece by Dennis Walsh looking at Waterford's collapse uh, since the National Hurling League success and the fact that Ozzy Gleeson needs to make sure he doesn't get sent off